Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Okay, um, we'll begin. And I, um, I wanted to say I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if what we're covering seems academic. Um, the Buddha's teachings really are profound and deep and difficult to comprehend fully, but we need them today. Uh, there are many reasons we as a society are so stupid. We need to get a lot smarter if we're going to meet the urgent crises we face right now in our natural world, in our societies, and in our families and personal lives. So to do this, we need to not only think about the issues, but we need to think about our thinking itself. Is it well-grounded? Is it wise? Is it clear? Or are the very foundations of our views and beliefs entirely wrong, or at the very least, very, very limited? So please understand, I'm not criticizing or blaming anyone. The reasons for our collective stupidity are many. Uh, legacy stupidity from past history, stretching as far back as anyone can know, uh, from our technologies that give us the illusion of knowing and connecting, from our educational systems, which have been deliberately dumbed down, from the confusion of experts, from the willful misdirection provided by corporations, the military, politicians, and other people. This isn't a rant. Our predicament is just an unfortunate confluence of confounding factors in our consciousness. We need to help each other discern wisdom from the proliferation of information and misinformation. But this will require us to really deepen our understanding and it requires a bit of work. So let's dive in again. <clears throat> We've been looking at existing views of cause and effect and their origins in the West through some philosophical history in our present moment experience and in India at the Buddha's time. These views share a common feature. They're linear, proceeding from cause to effect. They may accept that a single effect might have multiple causes, but the direction of influence is always one way, from causes to effects. It is this linear directionality that characterizes both Western and Indian models of causality, as well as our own common sense. And on the surface, our experience seems to verify this view. Time flies. An infant becomes a child and does not become an infant again. A broken glass does not become whole again. A car slowly depreciates and it does not become new again. But in observing time's arrow, we confuse it with causal influence. We misunderstand the fundamental workings of cause and effect. And this would not be problematic if it resulted only in our personal confusion and ignorance. But it has profound consequences for our relationships with others, our collaborative creation of a society, and our interdependence with all living beings. We're seeing right now in so many ways the destruction our wrong-headed ideas about cause and effect, and therefore right and wrong, have wrought in our world. Mass incarceration, destruction of our own habitat, a frayed social fabric, 
war and the rampant greed, hatred, and ignorance that drives so much conflict are just a few examples. The Buddha refuted the causal views of his time, as Macy notes, because they provided neither the desire to do, nor effort to do, nor necessity to do this deed or abstain from that deed. So then the necessity for action or inaction is not found to exist in truth or verity in those views. In modern times, the existentialists noticed this absence, but because they were still grounded in linear causality, they were filled with despair. There was no exit in a meaningless world. The experience of liberation becomes a nightmare of emptiness and alienation. This view is still captive of the linear model of cause and effect, even in their denial of meaning, possibility, and connection. If cause and effect were linear, as we have believed, there would be a straight and inevitable line from cause to effect, and it would always hold true. We've been told that smoking causes lung cancer, for example, and this seems like a fact that's been well proven by science. But some people smoke and live 100 years without disease, and some people get lung cancer who have never smoked. We're taught that speeding causes car accidents, yet we know people who speed all the time and never have an accident somehow. Drinking too much causes alcoholism, we are told. Yet there are people who can drink a lot and never become alcoholic. They're just heavy drinkers. We exercise, we eat wholesome food, we meditate, drive safely, and still get sick, still get hurt in car accidents. So these causes cannot actually be causes. Yet we know there's some real correlation. How can we best describe it? If we're mindful, we can recognize that raising a child, owning a pet, driving a car in traffic, planting a garden, are clear examples where simple models of cause and effect just do not seem to apply. Rather, they are examples of mutual causality, where causes and effects seem to influence each other. And of course, there are many other examples as well. In fact, our whole life unfolds that way. Our conditioning and our tendencies respond by either magnifying or dismissing our influence and its effects and magnifying or dismissing the influence of others. Steve Jobs believed he was the sole driving cause for Apple's success until its board fired him. When he returned, Apple was 90 days from bankruptcy and Steve had learned a valuable lesson about mutual causality in leading a company. What unfolded from there is legendary. And on a more personal note, um, when my son was just a baby, I always dressed him up uh, before we went out in a spiffy way. Uh, and my thought wasn't, I want people to think I'm a good mother or that, uh, you know, that he's a Natalie attired baby. What I really wanted was for him to be surrounded by smiling faces. And those smiling faces would convey to him a sense of delight in his being and a sense of self-worth that he could uh, take in even as an infant. So that was my thinking about that. But it's talking about that reciprocal influence, right? You see, um, you see a baby, you smile at the baby, the baby develops a certain sense of delight and then becomes delightful and then more people delight in the baby. So it's kind of uh, that kind of reciprocal mutual causation. So we have a little um, activity um, 
So if you have writing tools, we'll do this, we're gonna do this little activity early so we can have a little time to discuss it. And, uh, and then I'm gonna talk about the Buddha's uh, discovery in enlightenment. So you'll need some tools for writing. And I'm going to put this in the chat too after I explain it to you. Um, so please take a few minutes to get mindful and recall a time when you experienced the reality of causes and effects arising together and influencing each other. It may be something quite ordinary, driving on the expressway, for example, or cooking a meal. Describe that experience and what you recognized or now recognize about causes and effects. I'm going to put this in the chat so you'll have a copy of it. Okay, so we'll have about maybe 10 minutes or so to do a little bit of writing about what you discover. A time when you experience the reality of causes and effects arising together and influencing each other. Okay, you may not be completely finished, but you probably know where you're going from here. So um, we'd like to, uh, maybe Kim, you can uh, create some breakout rooms, uh, groups of four, and we'll uh, break out for 20 minutes. So what I'm curious about is what you might have heard from your partner or partners that um, you were curious about or that interested you uh, or surprised you. That someone in your group was talking about. Raise your hand if you have something you want to share that you heard or that impacted you in some way that what your partner said. Ellen? Um, well, I was interested in what Lynn said. She was talking about a situation, but she had clearly over time changed in her, the way she reacted to it. And uh, it made me think about what uh, Joanna Macy was saying in mutual causality about uh, feedback loops and learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just thought that was interesting that I don't know that she just sort of told the story that I just read about in the book. <laughs> so it connected. It's a life story of how that works. Yeah. Yeah. This whole process of um, teachers and students and learning and is such a reciprocal process as parenting is too, such a reciprocal process. You see how influenced we are by our children. We're, we're formed and shaped by them as much as we do any forming and shaping of them. But it's the same with our pets or a garden or yeah, many things that we interact with in that way. And we're a responsive function as well as an actor in it. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Yeah, Sandra. Mm -hmm. 
So in, in my group, um, I was with Andrea and Leslie. We still a little confused about the exercise. And I think the uh, idea to the still having this uh, linear uh, mm -hmm. thinking of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. so it's still a little confusing to understand this other way of everything arising at the same time. So yeah. it would be good if you can explain a little bit more that how. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's what I hope we'll be really unpacking a little bit more over the next couple of classes for sure. And today. Yeah, because it is subtle and you just about the point you think you grasp it, you discover, oh, I'm still working with this very linear view, but it's, uh, it's more subtle now. I'm still, uh, I'm still meditating to make something happen or um, in order to have some, some uh, instrumentalist view. Right. Yeah, Kim. Just going back to like the Freudian view, as I understand it, is our earliest um, experiences caused the next experience, which is, you know, causes us to be who we are. And that totally makes, in a way, um, takes away any control that we have or choices that we have at this moment. Yeah, which is not really true. So um, we, it's true that each moment shapes the next moment, but not in a linear way. So we're also shaped by it, believe it or not. We're also shaped by it, by our projections, our expectations, what we want to have happen, what we imagine will happen. Um, these are all feed into our present moment understanding, right? So, so I, f I found when I wrote that I'd been blaming the situation rather than blaming myself for the choices I made in that situation. Ah, that's interesting. Because that's where the agency is. If you blame the situation, it's always like a deterministic universe you can't control. So you don't have, there's no moral or ethical imperative there. That's what the Buddha was arguing. You know, you don't have any. And that goes back to the earliest experiences. Maybe. Yeah. Or even before that. Yeah. And, and we know so. that, that yeah. to, to our parents' experience and their parents' experience, you know, all that shapes in one way a little bit. Seven generations. Or a large. Yeah. Yeah. So how would we behave now if we recognize that our influence would extend seven generations in front of us. How might that change things? Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking of um, kind of before anything. <clears throat> I mean, those of you that know me know that um, you might know that Katie's surgeon's daughter's caught COVID. So Katie's operation has been canceled tomorrow. No. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's so we've we got a call um, saying that um, she's got COVID. So oh. the surgery is cancelled and we can't confirm it for two weeks. They're, they're going to try and confirm it tomorrow. So it's kind of like whose fault's that? And I was thinking, well, you know, the, the surgeon's daughter got COVID. How did she get COVID? But then we we delayed the surgery for a month to help Katie get a bit stronger. So then there's that choice, isn't there? 
and then yeah. there's kind of like um, then the government have got rules where the surgeon's not allowed to go into the hospital while he's got covid so he can't do surgery even if he wanted to so then there's that kind of outside infrastructure where you can't you know his choice is taken away yeah. and then it's kind of before that it, it's kind of you know katie had a gallbladder out three years ago uh, three four years ago and that's sort of started off all the scarring and and why her body's so covered in stuff it's triggered something but then what about before that was it what she was eating was it environmental and then i ended up way back thinking well you know what about you know two people got together thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago and then every couple that met and fell in love after that that eventually ended up in me um, meeting somebody and then having katie and then her body having this condition you know was it was it predetermined thousands and thousands of years ago or was it something that we've done in this lifetime and you know the the choices that, that that we've made and the things that we've delayed or you know there's so many different variables and things that i ended up back with adam and eve you know they got together and started procreating or there was a big bang and <laughs> life started whichever way you want to look at it and then here we are now you know all this time forward and i think before i did this course i think i would have um thought you know a bit more linear uh -huh. she's got covid so therefore we can't have the operation but there's so many things and you keep looking it goes wider and wider and wider and deeper and deeper and further back and further back and further out and it's endless it really is endless why this we're here right now that's right that's right and that's the realization really is um this these causal consequences feed back into each other i mean even further back if 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 a salamander doesn't, you know, lay her eggs, you don't exist. Because that's the next link in the chain of evolution, right? So every single, one of the ways to think about it is every single thing from the beginning of life on earth has had to happen perfectly in order for you to be here right now. Mm. If there's been any break in that link, you know, um, you don't exist. Mm. So... It's a very interesting thing when you start to realize all the way the causes and conditions have fed into everything that currently exists or that ever will exist. And it really brings back in that co-on that I've been working on for over a year, all blames into one. Yeah. It really kind of brings that home. Whose fault is it that, the, that she's got COVID? Whose fault is it that you can't, you can't take it anywhere because there's, it's because of everything else, because of everything. That's right. That's exactly right, because of everything else. Mm. And, and this is a, such an important realization, but you can see that it's not an easy thing because it doesn't, it doesn't say that everything is random, right? Mm. It's just random chance. There are choices that people make and they create certain consequences that feed back into choices, that feed back into the uh, causes even. Uh, so, so you can see, oh, this isn't random. It's lawful. This is what the Buddha understood. So we'll talk about a little about that with his uh, conversation with Kasapa about uh, cause and effect and the origins of suffering. Um, so yeah, this is such an important realization, Maria, and being able to expand the view as part of it, right? Being able to see more of the picture, Ooh. right? 
So did they reschedule your daughter's operation? They, they've got to wait to see if he catches COVID because his daughter's got COVID in the, in the same household. So he's going to get tested on the 14th of June. And if he's negative, he can do the surgery on the 15th of June. So we have to wait to see how that plays out. Uh, uh, so you have a And hopefully he won't get sick and he'll be okay as well. His family and everything that's going on with them. I mean, Absolutely. and all the other women that have been affected because one person's his situation has affected all the women in the next two weeks that are also having operations. Yeah, yeah. And their families, right? It's very far reaching, isn't it? Yes, it's very far reaching. Yeah, so, you know, so maybe his daughter went off to a concert or something and in a moment of foolishness, everything unfolds from that, right? That's what Katie said. She said she better not have gone to a disco because I'll be mad. <laughs> <laughs> It better be for a good reason. What can you do? You've got an opportunistic virus on the loose, you know, running around rampant. So all kinds of ways that that can, that can propagate. So, yeah, but that's such a beautiful realization, Maria. It's so important to be able to see that those additional dimensions, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and in that, it's not that there's no um, agency or responsibility. You are responsible for your part of that participatory universe, right? Mm -hmm. How, what, what your contribution to causes and conditions for others is. But it and, loosens everything up, doesn't it? It loosens everything up and creates space in between everything. Yeah. And then it increases the capacity for compassion and understanding because this space in it all, within it all, it's not just that happened because of that, it's much wider. Well, and there's, you know, and you begin to recognize every single being is subject to causes and conditions. So even people who seem like they're above it are still subject to causes and conditions that um, that arise in their life as a result of the choices they've made and the circumstances they face. So yeah, yeah, it's really um, this is a really important realization and it does it, you can see it is subtle profound difficult to comprehend if you tried to explain it to somebody you know their their eyes would just roll back in their head right yeah. <laughs> They're like, and it would be easy to throw up your hands and say well there's nothing i can do about anything then but that's not true no. still i mean you're creating the causes and conditions that help your daughter bear up with this delay and um and manage it uh, so obviously we have uh, some responsibility toward, as the Dalai Lama said, toward the whole world. Um, mm. It's because uh, it propagates out from our actions, thoughts, and words. This is um, such a subtle and challenging concept to get. Yeah. Mm. Anybody else want have any reports you want to share? Claudine? Uh, it's not a report, it's, it's coming after what you exchanged now. When you talk of these causes and the effects that arise together and so widely, and suddenly it, it can become so, so simple, maybe, when when you think it's just life as it is. 
Yeah. And and our choice, our choices are our responsibility, and the the way we decide not to react and act with our conditioning, but maybe we try to react in a different way, to act in a different way. But this cause and effects, we can just let them be at a certain level. I don't know, my English is not permitting to me to be so clear as I would like, but I, I, I hope you understand. No, I, I think you're being very clear, very clear, yeah. And the, um, the concept that we can't attach ourselves to the effects that we desire, that we're trying to promote, that we offer what we offer in our way of being, our, our functional orientation toward wisdom and compassion, um, we, we can offer that, but without some agenda for how, it, um, how the effects play out. Mm. We're responsible for how we meet it. Yeah, but we're not responsible for what plays out. We're responsible for learning from what pay, plays out, right? So we see, oh, this arising, this shows up, this arising, this shows up. Yeah. And it, um, it is very uh, powerful when you realize that because it's liberating. You're not clinging to the hope of some effect out that comes out of your actions or your words or your thoughts. Um, you release all of that. And that is, uh, it simplifies things quite a bit. And you realize how, if you look back, how, you know, striving to make something happen has always been a source of struggle and trouble and sometimes suffering for ourselves and for others. And maybe you make the thing happen, but in the way it happens, uh, mm -hmm. it's not satisfying, right? You can, you can make somebody spend time with you, but you can't make them enjoy spending time with you. Right? So, this is the uh, this is the issue. As I you know used to say to Flint, uh, you know, I, I I know I can make my son call me. I could you know like make him call me, but I want him to want to call me. So, so that's not an effect I can make happen. Uh, yeah, but by being uh, steadfast and patient and open and caring, um, I greatly increase the causes and conditions that ha that result in that effect. So that's that's part of it. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, so you're oh, muted. muted. You're muted, Mary. Is it okay? So yeah. there is a personal point to this that each of us has a as an influence at some point. Oh yeah. I take that as very important that, you know, regardless of what's going on, regardless of all of this complexity and cause and relationships, I do still have to stay on track, on path or, you know, and then it points to me that 
these ethical issues or ethical systems and belief systems are, why are they you know, have been created? Why is it so important? Why the cultural norms are important? And you know, it's shaping me and in a way I become an agent that can at some point have an influence within this so I, I take the personal action very seriously and you know I, I think it's I understand the whole complexity and at the same time you know my my own generational relationships I can understand it I can pinpoint to them but where where am I at this point and what is my role and what is my function and you know, I, I highly emphasize on that, and that is my approach. You know, I, you know, we, we can empathize with people, but then at the same time, there's a, you know, personal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It has to do with our uh, relationships. All of uh, these, um, this causal formulation has to do with our relationships, absolutely. and. Uh, it's it's absolutely critical to understand that. I mean, this is why we meditate is to get clarity around this uh, this situation of our relatedness, and to have some wisdom in the way that we manifest our uh, our deepest in, uh, intentions and aspirations, uh, not as an agenda to fix something or make something happen, but to be present to things in the way that we want to be present to them. So that the influences that we have are, um, at the least, uh, somewhat related to our intentions for them. Yeah, yeah. There's no escaping that. That's great. Yeah, that's a really a great insight. So what the Buddha realized in his enlightenment was truly revolutionary. And it remains so today, as you can see, because it flies in the face of all kinds of so-called common sense or conventional wisdom. So while a handful of contemporary scientists and philosophers have recognized the inadequacy of linear models of causality and have discovered in complex systems the same insights about mutual causality, this discovery has had little impact on mainstream beliefs, including those that inform personal beliefs, our conventional collective wisdom, our public policies, and social movements. So I'm going to um, I'm going to briefly uh, review how the Buddha expressed this um, in a story of his own enlightenment. Um, I know that you're familiar with this story, but this part of it might not have um, a really quite sunk in. So he says, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi in the Buddha's words. Um, this is the uh, Buddha's account. He said, monks, before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, it occurred to me, alas, this world has fallen into trouble in that it is born, ages, and dies. It passes away and is reborn. Yet it does not understand the escape from this suffering headed by aging and death. When now will an escape be discerned from this suffering headed by aging and death? Then monks, it occurred to me, when what exists does aging and death come to be? By what is aging and death conditioned? 
Then monks, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there's birth, aging and death comes to be. Aging and death has birth as its condition. Then monks, it occurred to me, when what exists does birth come to be? Existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense bases, name and form. By what is name and form condition? So this is the whole series. Then monks, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is consciousness, name and form comes to be. Name and form has consciousness as its condition. Then monks, it occurred to me, when what exists does consciousness come to be? By what is consciousness conditioned? Then monks, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is name and form, consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. Then monks, it occurred to me, this consciousness turns back. It does not go farther than name and form. It is to this extent that one may be born and age and die, pass away and be reborn. That is, when there is consciousness with name and form as its condition, the name and form with consciousness as its condition. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases with the six sense bases as condition contact and so on, such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Origination, origination, thus monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, penetration, and light. So then he works it backwards. When what does not exist, does aging and death not come to be? With the cessation of what does the cessation of aging and death come about? Then monks, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is no birth, aging and death does not come to be. With the cessation of birth comes the cessation of aging and death. And he goes through all of the steps backwards to, with the cessation of what does the cessation of name and form come about? Then monks, through careful attention, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is no consciousness, name and form does not come to be. With the cessation of consciousness comes cessation of name and form. And so on. Um, then, monks, it occurred to me, I have discovered this path to enlightenment. That is, with the cessation of name and form comes cessation of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness comes cessation of name and form. With the cessation of name and form, cessation of the six sense bases. With the cessation of the six sense bases, cessation of contact. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Cessation, cessation. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, penetration, and light. So, <clears throat> so just to set the scene a little bit, you can think about this settling into mindfulness of what was right before him on that last night when he was about to be enlightened. The Buddha considered his own life right there and back to its beginning. You remember, he recalled when he was a boy lying under a, a rose apple tree while his father was plowing and he fell into a kind of reverie. Um, and he, after all of his severe ascetic practices, realized that, that those practices were not the path to awakening, not the path to higher knowledge, but maybe, maybe just maybe that 
quality, that boyish quality of just open wonder might be. So, <clears throat> so he was studying this and, um, and he, he began uh, looking back at his own life, his own suffering and this, uh, and this quality that he had as a young boy. Uh, and so then he wondered where, where did suffering really begin? So past lives were a common subject in the teachings of his time and in Indian cultural knowledge. So since he was seeking the origins of suffering, was it just fate? Was it caused by our will or behaviors? He was able, according to his account, to access his many past lives, searching for connections to suffering in this life. When he had thoroughly reviewed these past lives in which he had different names, families, food, and habitation, he understood how identities are constructed, arise, and disappear, and how transient they are. <clears throat> lifetime after lifetime. So then he wondered about other people. They too seemed to suffer, get sick, grow old, fall ill, and die. And he widened his view to include all of humanity, just as Maria was talking about. He saw how, he saw how they fared forward under all conditions, how their lives were shaped by their karma and unfolded accordingly from birth to death. But that karma was not the result of blind fate or accident, nor was it entirely within their control. Somehow, though, the cumulative effect of moment-by-moment -moment decisions and inclinations, meeting their various circumstances, creating new conditions and new reactions, was ever shaping the flow of their lives. And we often see this, I mean, when we look at our parents, we can see the um, impact of the karmic consequences of all of the decisions and tiny decisions, moment-by-moment -moment decisions they made throughout their lives. So this goes back to what Kim was talking about, you know, from the very beginning, we come in with maybe certain tendencies and we meet the circumstances of our lives and start making interpretations about what those mean and start building an identity. So in terrible circumstances, some found a joyful equanimity, others were crushed or anger festered in them. In ease and luxury, some were still bitter and unhappy. You all know this, you've all seen this. Flint tells a story of going for brunch at the most famous restaurant in New Orleans um, as a special treat, he and Aaron. And as they were shown to their place, they passed a huge table laden with beignets, bowls of fresh fruit, platters of ham and bacon, mounds of potatoes and plates of eggs benedict. There were babies and toddlers and teenagers and parents and grandparents all around the table. And at its head was the matriarch, regal and coiffed in her 80s surveying this splendid array and all of her family. And looking down at her plate with pinched lips, she said, I'm not that happy with mine. So I always think this is such a wonderful example of the, our capacity to be unhappy in paradise, right? So in observing the whole of humanity, the Buddha could see that these different lives were unfolding as a product of the karma resulting from each person's intentions and actions. So you can imagine there's a lifetime of dissatisfaction behind that woman's experience, right? Just a lifetime of everything being slightly unsatisfying or majorly unsatisfying. 
So the Buddha wanted to investigate and he continued to deepen in meditation. What causes suffering? There were so many factors, so many forms of suffering. So he began with the most extreme, death and dying. Every living being eventually dies. This is a universal truth. So what causes death? We think hypertension, obesity, heart disease, cancer, COVID, car accident, murder, crib death, falls, hurricanes, wildfires, lions, bombs, despair, loneliness, poison, wars, old age, the list just goes on and on. But at the bottom of it, there's only one condition that leads to death in every case, and that is being born. Everything that is born eventually dies. However that happens, birth is the condition for death. The Buddha began to work backward from this point to explore the chain of causes and conditions, the origins of the whole mass of suffering. There's no real simple term for the complexity of mutual causality, where effects influence causes, which in turn generate effects, and where the chain of causation is not linear. The Buddhist term for this complexity is causes and conditions. By smoking, we create causes and conditions favorable to lung cancer. We live in a probabilistic universe. It is not a random or a chaotic universe, but a lawful one. That's the meaning of dharma, lawful. But the laws are not simplistic. All we can do is endeavor to be wise about the causes and conditions we're contributing to and pay attention to how this influences the way our life and the lives of others unfold. It is a participatory universe, being passive, sitting back in order to avoid risk, hiding out, also creates causes and conditions. And we need to be mindful of the healthy or unhealthy consequences that unfold from that. It is a learning universe. From birth to death, we are in a training program. And in turn, our experience is how the universe comes to know and manifest itself. There's no way to avoid causes and conditions that are created by and radiate out from our every thought, word, and action. And that's why it's so important to build our capacity to be awake, attentive, wise, and compassionate for ourselves and for others and for our world. Meditation is the method par excellence for developing those capacities. This too, the Buddha realized. So I want to um, share a little bit of what Macy has said about that, Joanna Macy in Mutual Causality. Um, the conditional factors which I'll go over in just a moment now, um, enumerated in the Buddha's teaching of Paticca Samuppada, came to be known as the Nidanas. Macy points out that Nidana denotes basis, constraint, or occasion, not cause. Another term used synonymously is Pachaya, which is translated as conditioned by. The series appears in a variety of forms and numbers, as sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 12, but the predominant form that became standard is 12-fold, and connecting each is conditioned by. So I'm going to read these, but I'm also going to screen share them with you, so um, I think I can do that. So you can see what, uh... okay, can you see it, this list? This is the list. So as he said, avijja, ignorance, this is the starting condition. 
We might also think of this as the unborn and uncreated. So with ignorance as condition, this arises, sankara, which is volitional or karmic formations. I think of this as some impulse arises out of the chaos, out of the nothingness, some impulse. Um, and then uh, with that as a condition, consciousness or cognition, vinyana, the birth of awareness begins. With that awareness, consciousness or cognition, nama rupa, name and form, arises. Now, name and form is the term for both the contents of our consciousness as well as uh, the elements that create actual form, material form. So name and form or um, con con consciousness turning into constructs, uh, forming something. So we might think of this as the initial sense of self, existence of self. And with that as a condition, salyatana, the sixfold senses arise. So that's the five senses plus the mind as a sensory organ. Um, and with those senses, we then encounter the world, right? So then we have fasa contact. The sense organs come into contact with the world. <clears throat> From that contact, with that as a condition, arises vedana, feeling. That is, that this contact is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. From that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience arises tanha, which craving, which literally means thirst. And then with that as a condition, upadana arises, grasping or kind of reaching out for. Uh, and bhava, becoming, arises from that. From that reaching out, we come fully into being. And then jati, birth. And then viramarana, decay and death. So <clears throat> this is the listing, anyway, of those conditioned factors. And then the Buddha worked it backwards. So um, uh, what ceasing does the other not come into being? So if birth ceases, death does not come into being. If becoming ceases, birth does not come into being. If becoming ceases, uh, if, uh, yeah, if grasping ceases, becoming does not come into being. So for each of these, if that thing ceases, uh, that which is conditioned upon it cannot come into being. And it was only when he had worked it forward and backward that the Buddha really declared that he had understood completely these factors and this, uh, this paticca samuppada dependent origination. So, okay, any questions so far? See if I can see everybody. If you have a question, put um, uh, Kim. You're, I think you're muted. I can't hear you. Why is birth 11 the, and not one? A lot has to happen before you get born, right? So there's, you're starting from uh, total ignorance. Then there has to be some impulse, and that impulse guides a sperm cell to an egg cell. Um, the birth of some kind of awareness, um, the uh, 
beginnings of consciousness, like we know that infants, even in a womb, can hear things um, and uh, and have uh, are already forming categories. Uh, so that's beginning already before birth. Um, the senses are developing, um, and the sense organs are coming into contact with the uh, embryonic world. Um, so, uh, so already, even I mean, even an amoeba has uh, the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. An amoeba will travel up a food gradient, uh, right? So, even before embry em in embryonic terms, we can say these things are already beginning even before birth. Okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, Sandra. Oh, okay, Sandra. But uh, for example, craving and grasping, you don't have that when you are a fetus embryonically. So how, how that was, because yes, I have the same question that came, but I understand the other ones, but the craving yeah. and grasping uh, and the becoming, how, how can you put that? How can you have that before birth? Well, I don't know. This is just the formulation. And I think it's not even so much that it's before birth, but it's in the momentary arising. So in the momentary arising, these things arise conditioned on each other. So if you don't have any craving, you're not going to have any grasping. And you're not going to have any craving unless you feel something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? Yes, I understand to have all that in in any like now, you know, when something arises or yeah, you can, you yeah, all that. But in this context about before birth, to have all that. I think they're not. I think it's not necessarily talking about um, you know our fetal birth, but talking about the birth of being. Okay, makes right? sense. Yes. So the um, out of that out of these early sensations or out of whatever sensations at any moment, you know, we're coming into being um, and we're um, birthing ourselves in a way. Yeah. yeah. So this, it, these, this is a conditional relationship. It's not necessarily a clock relationship. Yeah. It, these things are the conditions under which the other things arise. So, um, so the Buddha, uh, Macy points out the, um, that the emphasis is on the conditional relationship of these factors. And in some cases, they're presented in different order even, um, rather than the separate factors themselves. The emphasis is on the transiency and relationality which characterize them and which provide a scope for meaningful change. The factors which we experience as basic to life and which give rise to our pain condition each other. All are linked, none are permanent hence the possibility of release. So it's often taught that the thing to do is eliminate craving. Um, and, uh, and at least a couple of the um, people I've been reading uh, say that that's a little bit um, misguided because craving is, it, the term for that is thirst. We can't control thirst arising in us, right? It's a natural function. So our experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, we, we have a natural response to that, which is um, internal. It's a felt sense of thirst. We can't control for that, I don't think. But we can control of our grasping. So, um, so maybe 
we're uh, we're hungry, but we don't. We can control whether we grasp a donut or whether we grasp a broccoli spear. You know, like we we can control um, the this quality of grasping when we experience that thirst. And that's where I think the intervention can happen in between tanha and upadana, the grasping piece of it. So um, this, I think, is also a function of maturity, where you learn that you're not going to try and gratify every desire that you have, right? Um, that you have some um, management of desire, basically. Um, so, and that's often, I think, fostered by as we say by the kind of discipline that we think of as recalling what you want. <clears throat> so you may be tempted by something, but you may recall, you know, you're tempted by that donut, but you recall what you want is a healthy body. Um, and that donut isn't going to make a contribution to that. So, um, so then, uh, what comes into being is different under those conditions, right? What comes into being is someone who has command of themselves, who has um, uh, an ability to align with their deepest intentions, uh, rather than someone who's a, a prisoner who's hijacked by, uh, by their own uh, craving. So for me, that's the easy, easier place to make an intervention if we want to disrupt this whole cycle of dependent origination. So uh, Macy says, the teachings of Paticca Samuppada, which are shot through the Buddhas, they're in 90, something like 96 sutras, 93 sutras. Um, <clears throat> uh, in, th in this form, it occurs chiefly in the accounts of the Buddha's enlightenment and in passages where he is distinguishing the Dharma from other views of karma and determinacy. And she says, in these early texts, the series is not presented as a portrayal of rebirth or a sequence of lives. That interpretation arose later with the Abhidharma or Buddhist scholastic thought. Nor is the series in the suttas and the Vinaya imaged in a circular form. So sometimes you'll see it as a wheel, presented as a wheel, or even as a mandala. Uh, only in later descriptions and iconography is it applied to the symbol of the wheel which has featured in Indian culture since the time of the chariot driving Aryan. So this way predated the Buddha, the use of the wheel as, an, as a symbol or an emblem. The circle thus formed conveying the endlessness and beginninglessness of causal interaction. Uh, so the, the four part formula that, that the Buddha often uh, would cite is imasmin sati, idam hoti, imasupada idam upajati, imasmin asati idam na hoti, imasa niroda idam nirujati. So that means this being that becomes. From the arising of this, that arises. This not being, that becomes not. From the ceasing of this, that ceases. So it's a simple little formulation, but it's working that causality forward and backward. So the, Macy says the conditionality is that of a universe in process where all is interrelated and mutually affecting. 
as Maria was saying. She notes, no mention of, is made of dukkha here, nor is this formulation tied in the texts to explanations of suffering. <clears throat> this, I thought this was very interesting. Rather, it presents simply and boldly the interdependence of phenomena which the Buddha perceived. Paticca Samuppada is frequently assumed to consist of an explanation of suffering alone, but that does not define or delineate the content of the insight that occurred in the enlightenment. It was not dukkha that the Buddha beheld beneath the Bodhi tree. That fact he already knew and it impelled his search. It was Samudaya and Niroda, the conditioned arising and ceasing that broke upon him there. Nor did this relation of arising and passing away come to be presented exclusively in terms of suffering. Rather, the largest proportion of the 93 suttas dealing with Paticca Samuppada, 56, present Paticca Samuppada as the causal relation between all phenomena and the principle which all followers must master. So he would use it as an explanation for suffering, for dukkha, but it was the umbrella concept, dependent origination was the umbrella concept, um, which, which could serve as an explanation for suffering, but is not confined to that. It's the larger um, fundamental principle of what he discovered. So, um, so next time, we will talk about uh, an occasion where he used it in just that way, when he was questioned by the, uh, the disciple Kasapa about the origins of suffering. And he uses Paticca Samuppada as a way to explain the origins of suffering. And, uh, and so we'll talk, that's where we'll start next time because we're at the end of our time, but so far so good. So this is, I know, complex and um, it's very challenging. It's particularly challenging to our common sense understanding of cause and effect. But also it's just a very rich teaching and there's a lot to think about. So you have a week to think about it and we'll come back together again next time. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye you all. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. Thank you. You too. Good luck, Maria, and your daughter in the next two weeks. Oh, thank you. Thank oh, you. yes, Maria. We're thinking of you and holding you in our hearts. Yes, thank indeed. You. I can feel it. Thank you.